Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, John 3.16, with a message entitled, He Gave His Only Son. So turn in your Bibles to John 3.16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. What does it mean for God to give? And we know that God's given us life. You know, as our creator, he has made us. And he did so in such a way that we human beings are in his image. We think we're self-aware. We long for relationship. We imagine what might be and we seek to create. So in so many ways, we're just like God. But we also experience life and good. We notice that our needs are provided. The earth that God has made, our home, is filled with an abundance that sustains and gladdens our hearts. And so I think we all know what it means for God to give. When God gives, he does not give something that's merely good enough. When he gives, he gives something that's very good. Not just good, something magnificent. For as you and I think about the gift of life, the experiences of life, the adventures of life, the intellectual thoughts that are possible in this life, when we think of relationships that are formed, what do we make of this gift that God has lavished on us? Of course, the apex of life is the experience of knowing our Creator, but more than that, that we might bow in submission to Him. It's a great gift! For animals, although they do experience life, don't experience the divine. They don't know the power of rejecting evil and clinging to that which is good. Yeah, God gave them life, but they didn't receive the gift with the abundance to which we have received it. God gave to us. But of course, our first parents rebelled against that greatest gift, the gift of living in submission to the divine. And instead, they chose to desire to be gods in their own right and to trust not in him, but in themselves. And we as their children have followed in their pathway with great eagerness. And so when we examined what it meant for God to love the world, we came to see that what was meant by the world is the world in active rebellion to him. The world that exchanges his gifts for pleasures that excite us for a moment and then lead us to death. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is, there is one more gift that God had for us. And so today, let's look at that one statement that he gave his only son. How do we understand it? Let's let John explain it to us. Go back to the place in where this book starts, John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We can, of course, take a great deal of time with that one statement alone, for books have been written about it. But at the very least, we can say that for eternity past, until the moment the Son was clothed with humanity, the Son has always existed, and not just that he eternally existed, but that he existed in relation with his Father. As we've already seen when we spoke you know, of the fact that God is love, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit lived in a fellowship of love, joy, and meaning. But we need here also to add that like the Father and the Spirit, the Son had no material substance. That is to say, when we think of God, a part of his essential nature is that he is spirit and not flesh. He has no form as we have. And furthermore, he's omnipresent, everywhere present. And of course, along with the Father and the Spirit, the Son was always eternally glorious, excellent, lacking in nothing, needing nothing. But let's allow John to explain further what it meant for God the Father to give, John 1.14. 
and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So concentrate on one word, and it's the word became. The word became flesh. Now, became doesn't mean that the Son stopped being God. God can't cease being God. For to be God is essential to the nature of God. And God does not, nor can he, be anything other than he is. Theologians often tell us that God is immutable, and they mean by that God never changes. And that's affirmed in Scripture, Malachi 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Now, in the context of Malachi, that means that God does not make a promise and then break it later. He's not righteous at one moment and then becomes evil at the next. God doesn't improve. For if he did, the God we worship today would not be the best possible being, for he would be better in the future. And God doesn't learn. He doesn't grow in his understanding. He doesn't learn by his mistakes. There are no mistakes in God. See, in that sense, God is unlike us and unlike anything we've ever experienced. For everything we experience changes and grows and then it dies. As the hymn writer wrote, change and decay and all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. You know, it's comforting to know that God is the same yesterday, today, and on into eternity. He is and always will be the altogether lovely, all-powerful, and all-glorious God. You know, that must be plain, for if it were any different, we wouldn't be speaking about God. We'd rather be speaking about ourselves or about the creation and not the creator, for the creator is ever the same. But that doesn't mean that the changeless one never does a new thing. He does. For although his character is the same, his mercies are new every morning. And since God continues to give, it shouldn't therefore surprise us that God would give to the rebellious and sinful world his only son. Let's get back to that statement that the word became. You know, some might be troubled that the word who is himself fully God should become anything. Is he not changeless? So let's start with that rather simple statement. When John tells us that the eternal word became flesh, or as other translations say, that he took upon himself flesh, we're not saying that his divine nature has changed. Indeed, the incarnation, the the infleshing of the eternal Son of God doesn't subtract from God. Instead, the Son added something to himself, a second nature. Let me repeat that. In order for the Father to give his Son, the Son did not, did not set aside his deity nor his glory. Rather, the Son added human nature to his divine nature. So please stay with me, for for that's the heart of the Christian faith. Listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Speaking of the Son, Paul says, "...who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men." See, the key here is the word to empty. Now, that word doesn't mean what you might think it means. You know, in English, to empty means to pour something out. So think of a water glass. In order to empty it, you've got to pour the water out. Is that what God has done? In order for God to give us his son, did the son need to pour his deity out? Now, if that was true, well, then God would no longer be God. But that's not what Jesus did. Rather, the Greek word kenosis, here here translated as emptying, is probably better translated as humbling. 
That is, when Jesus the Son took on human flesh, it was an act of divine condescension. Though he was always in the form of God, and though he always will be in the form of God, he humbled himself. For the Father to give the gift of his Son, what was required was an act of condescension. The Son took on the form, not just the flesh, but he took on the form of a servant. But who is servant? Well, the answer to that is found in Mark 10, 45. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, when the Son came into the human race, he came not to dominate, but to serve. And that thought is almost inconceivable. I know when he comes again, he comes on a white horse, and he will strike down the nations who resist him, and he will rule with a rod of iron. But not at his first coming. When the word became flesh, he came in the position of the least. He's born in a stable in a barn. He's born to a mother who's a virgin and who knows no wealth. Yeah, the Magi came from the east to worship at his cradle, but but soon after that they leave, and a wicked king seeks to put him to death, and his parents flee with him, and he lives as a refugee, not as a ruler. Indeed, as we think of the life of Jesus, John, when contemplating it, says, and here I'm quoting John 1, verse 11, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Or Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So think of those words, God gave. Indeed, what he gave was so much greater than when he gave us life. I mean, life is a stunning gift. But what is the gift of the eternal Son clothing himself in flesh and taking the form not just of a man, but of a servant, the lowest of men? And indeed, so great is this gift that the form he took was the form of a despised man, a man who was not well regarded, indeed, a man whom the sinful world, the world at odds with God, found to be abhorrent and despicable. And it was in this form that the Father chose to give, and we know why. It was necessary that the beloved of the Father might become the despised of this world so that the Son might pay for the sins of men and women. As the hymn writer wrote, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. Last month, Back to the Bible Canada shared the exciting news that our young adult ministry in doubt has welcomed Andrew Marcus as its new host and director. After much prayer and planning, InDoubt is ready to relaunch this month with exciting new programming. In addition to our regular weekly radio program and podcast, you can now access on YouTube and InDoubt.ca The InDoubt Show. New episodes will be posted every Monday, featuring guests well-equipped to speak into the challenges of faith, life, and culture that so many young adults are facing today. Humor, fun, but most importantly, a source of biblical truth for those in doubt. Be sure to check out our In Doubt YouTube channel or podcast and share the word with other young adults in your lives. Stay tuned for more exciting news in the weeks ahead. And for more information or to support this important ministry, visit indoubt.ca.
We have not yet even begun to plumb the depths of the Incarnation. And we've made the point that when the Son became a man, he took upon himself a true and full human nature, even while he didn't cease in any way to be divine. Now, historically, theologians, in attempting to understand this, have given it a name. And they call it the hypostatic union. I know that sounds technical, but it can be made quite simple. The word itself, hypostatic, well, that's simply a transliteration of the Greek word hypostasis, which means being. It refers to the union of the divine nature of Jesus with the human nature which he took upon himself. Those two natures, the divine and the human, are joined together in one being. I know that sounds a bit philosophical, but understand what's involved. Let's say that Jesus was only divine, but he merely appeared to be human. What then? Well, that would mean when he was tempted, when he suffered. It wasn't true suffering. It, it just appeared that way. In that sense, we would never say that Jesus truly suffered for us. But what if we said that Jesus was truly human, but wasn't divine? What then? Well, if that were true, then he would not be our sin substitute, for how could a mere human being bear the sins of the world or by his one substitute take away our sin? I mean, don't you see that wouldn't do? And for that matter, we would never say that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But what if we said that he was partly human and partly divine? There's an older way of saying that. It's called the intermingling of natures. You know, in that case, we might again say, how then can it be true that he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin? So I hope you see, in order for the good news of Jesus to actually be the true news, that God so loved the world that he gave his son, that there must be a union of the two natures of Jesus in his incarnation. That means in some mysterious sense, the divine nature and the human nature must be united in one person. Look, we're not saying that Jesus was two persons. He's not. He's but one person. But what we are saying is that the one person of Jesus has two natures. One is fully human and the other is fully divine. And that explains some of the mysteries that we find in the Gospels. John 16, 29 and 30, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. You know all things, they say, and he does. And yet, there's Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So I'm about to say something that's, you know, very difficult to understand. Listen, in his divine nature, Jesus knows the day and the hour. He knows all things, but in his human nature, he doesn't. And that takes us back to Philippians 2, verse 6, where Paul began with the words, though he was always in the form of God. See, never a time when he was not God. And then speaking of his incarnation, Paul adds, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that word grasped is sometimes translated as seized. You know, translators will often indicate that the word that Paul uses is a word that's used of a thief who finds a treasure or even a pirate who seeks plunder. Paul is saying that Jesus, in his life on earth, refused to lay a hold of the benefits of deity, plundering it and using it to his advantage. And that's what we read about in the life of Jesus. 
So, for instance, he's in the wilderness tempted by the devil, and he, instead of laying a hold of his deity, quotes scripture, relies on God. That's why Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. That is, Jesus knew how torturous it was to at all times live his life in obedience to the Father, and he continued to do so. He was sinless because he submitted to the Father, not because he used his deity as plunder. And that also explains his great trial, both in Gethsemane and on the cross. In the garden, he sweats drops of blood as he determines, not my way, but yours be done. And on the cross, as his enemies taunt him, if you're really the son of God, come down off the cross, they say. How Satan would have loved that. But he humbles himself unto death, even death on a cross. And so what does it mean that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Well, at the very least, it means what Romans 5 verse 8 tells us, that God demonstrates his love for us in that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I need to take up one more item that is often missed by Christians. It's possible that we might wonder how great the gift of Jesus given from the Father truly is. Oh, yeah, it's true. He took the form of a man and even a servant, and yeah, it is true that he suffered on the cross for all, taking the full weight of human sin. And yeah, it's true that he experienced all these things as one who is fully human. But isn't it also true that it only lasted for less than 40 years? In the light of eternity, infinite ages past, infinite ages still to come, what are we to make of such a short period of time of suffering? But let's get back to John 1.14. The Word became flesh. What are you hearing here? Do you think that humanity is merely a clothing to be put on and then discarded when it's no longer required? I mean, did Jesus simply temporarily enter into the human experience? Did he simply visit our humanity and then simply abandon it later? I do think that a great many Christians do think that, but is it true? And what does the Bible say about that? Well, let's look at a number of biblical examples. And first, let's consider this matter of his ascension into heaven. Remember, by then, he has died on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. He spent the last 40 days both teaching his disciples and also giving convincing proofs that he's alive and that he's not simply come back to look as if he were human. And then comes the time of his ascension. I'm reading Acts 1, 9 to 11. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That is, he ascended into heaven as one who is fully human. Yeah, his body was a resurrected body. It was no longer subject to death, but it was still a fully human body. In his resurrection, he was still fully human and fully divine. And there was a union of his two natures in the one person of Jesus. That's how he went into heaven. That's how he's going to return. And listen to Philippians 3, 20 to 21. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like what? His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is, when Christ returns, he'll transform our lowly body. But the term lowly body means the body that's still subject to death. 
and the transformation to come. It's not a transformation into something that's not human, but rather it's a transformation to be what humanity was always intended to be. And so what are we intended to be? And the answer is that we were intended to have a body like the raised body of Jesus, and we were intended to be as Jesus is when he returns for us. When Jesus returns, we will be like him. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. See, in this passage written after the ascension of Jesus, Paul can still refer to Jesus as the man Christ Jesus. Jesus may have ascended his glorious throne, but he continues there as fully man and yet also as fully God. And all of that to say that God did not only for a brief moment, that is, you know, a little over 30 years, you know, come as a man, then shed his humanity and go back to being fully divine. Instead, listen to how Jesus appears in Revelation 5 verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And passages like that have led many Bible teachers to conclude that in heaven, the body that had the nail scars and the place where the spear had gone, those marks that were shown to Thomas, that might convince him that indeed it was the real raised body of Jesus, that body wasn't simply for show. Those are the marks that Jesus bears as perfect God-man for all eternity. So John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And putting it like that tells us that the love of God for the ruined, rebellious, and dying human race was so great that what God gave was the most precious thing that God could give. And that should fill us with wonder that the son should not only take the form of a man, that he would suffer and die for us, but he would also continue to be our brother for all of eternity. This is the love of God. Thanks so much, John. Now, just for clarity purposes, I think it's important to to understand that Jesus is and will be fully human throughout all eternity. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. He continues to be our God, and he continues to be our brother at the same time. I mean, you know, he rules over all the works of God's hands because Adam, who forfeited this rule, Christ is the second Adam who has taken and done that which Adam could not do. And so we, as we rule with Christ, rule with one who is our older brother and who is the one who also, as fully human, shows us how to live and demonstrates that. That's the wonder of the gospel. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, John 316, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. 
To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.